Um, remember a year ago, we looked at Leviticus, and I presented to you the idea that the Leviticus is really a blueprint for a house. It's not the house. It's a blueprint, and it takes a spirit. It takes a builder. That's what happened to Pentecost. When the spirit came, he came to build a house, and that's what's happening. So this year, we're looking at Ephesians. Oh, it's interesting. I got an email this week from a, a lady in, um, in Australia. Uh, I think she's an adult, and uh, she's been listening to... She heard me on a podca- on the podcast with Lisa Harper. So she's been going back and listening to my sermons. And so she talked her mom into going through Leviticus with her. So they're going through Leviticus from a year ago. So she wrote me an email to tell me how much they're enjoying it. And had, had never had it, heard it presented that way. So we're in Ephesians. And Ephesians is actually a picture of the house that the Spirit is building. And so you remember, uh, here's what we've looked at so far. that we This house that God is building, by the way, the house is right here. The house that God is building is a house of blessing. It's a house of thanksgiving. It's a house of life. And today we're going to look at it's a house of reconciliation. So the question that we have uh, today is, what makes this building, this institution, this church, this temple so unique? There's nothing like it on the earth. Nothing like it on the earth. There's no other institution like the church we're going to begin exploring that today. What makes it unique? How did it come about? And what's the purpose of this building? This is a passage in Ephesians that's very dense. It's very short, but it's got a lot of stuff packed into it. And uh, we're going to be working our way through it. So remember how we laid out Ephesians as a circular letter going through all the churches, probably throughout Asia Minor. And um, the you and the us uh, are us we, we are the Gentiles, and you are, I mean, we are the Jews, you are the Gentiles. So he started out in Ephesians 1 using very familiar uh, anti-Gentile rhetoric, okay? So the Jews thought of everybody that's non-Jewish as Gentile. It's the word ethne from which we get ethnicity or ethnic groups, things like that. So every nation was not, that was not Jewish was considered to be a Gentile. And so this is talking about us today with the Gentiles. And what we're going to find is that this Jew and Gentile division, Paul starts out using pretty common anti-Gentile rhetoric by the Jews, but he's writing to Gentiles. So I think he's doing it with a twinkle in his eye and tongue in cheek. To They're going, oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard this before. And then as a book slowly unfolds, he's bringing everything together. And today's the day when we come together. Today's the day fourth Sunday in. And so um, you, this is a letter about you. I think almost everybody in here is Gentile. It's a letter about you. So remember, here's God. And to use an older metaphor now, he created a kaleidoscope of nations and he chose one to reach the rest. Okay. So that's kind of the background as we get into the story. And then this will all begin to make sense. Okay. The passage is laid out with three Basic ideas. Number one, there's a problem. That's the Gentiles that you are excluded. Number two is there's a solution. You've been brought near because of Christ. And then finally, what is the impact? The Jews are now included in every way. We're going to work our way through that. So um, in Ephesians 1.10, this is where reconciliation begins. In Ephesians 1.10, we had read this before. Um, He's talking about Christ. He uh, put into effect when the times to be put into effect, the good things that Christ was doing, 
uh, when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. To bring unity to all things. We're going to come back to that verse actually a little bit later. Okay, so let's read the first two verses in Ephesians 2, verse 11 and 12 for today. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called, and the NIV has it in quotes, uncircumcised by those who are who call themselves kind of the so-called circumcision. Those are the Jewish people, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So he just identified five problems that we faced as Gentiles, okay? Because the Jews had never gone to reach the rest of the world. They had not done that. So therefore, we're excluded. The very first one is that we're separated from Christ. Second one is that we're excluded from citizenship in Israel. We don't belong to the nation of Israel. And so they saw themselves, we are the pri- we are the uh, God's prized possession, we are the chosen people, we're the special people, you're not like us, and stay out. And we're going to see more of that in just a minute. And so we were excluded from that. We were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, okay? We didn't, uh, the, the covenants and the prophecies included the Gentiles, but they wouldn't have known that. That's all captured in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we think of as the Old Testament. So the Gentiles would have probably never heard these, this word, these words about them out of the Old Testament. They were included. That was God's original plan. He also says, number four, that they were without hope. We were without hope, and we were without God in the world. Okay, pause just for a moment. We had figured out that, um, you know, the gods of the ancient world didn't really do anything to bless us. And so we are removed this phrase the foreigners of the covenant to the covenants of promise it's a very unique phrase in scripture and the purpose of the covenants was to use a chosen people to reach the rest of the world and so we were excluded from the blessings because they didn't do that so imagine life and this is what happens all over the world everywhere i travel the gods they're not there to bless our goal is to appease them so that they uh they won't be mad at us. But everywhere I go in every country with every religion, nowhere do they think of the gods as somebody who's going to bless them. That's not how they think. We want to keep them away. We want to keep them happy, uh, satisfied, so that they won't be angry with us. So you can imagine what it's like. He's describing what it's like for us without Christ. There's no hope. And everything we were shooting after, remember we looked at Ecclesiastes, grabbing after the wind, Everything that we're grabbing after, oh, it brings short-term satisfaction, but it doesn't really bring long-term. We're always unsatisfied, unhappy. So what's the solution to this? This is in verse 13. But now, oh, I just love that word, but, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were brought near, not by conversion to Judaism. That's not how. We were brought near by the saving work of Christ and what he did. And this echoes what he said in the first chapter in verse 7. In him, we have redemption, that's in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now remember, in chapter 1, he's saying we... The Jews have this 
It's not until verse 13 and 14 when he says, and you also were included when you heard the message of truth, when you believed. And so we are recipients of this now. And he's coming back to this and talking about that. So it wasn't conversion to Judaism. That's not what did it. It was Christ's saving activity. Can you imagine just for a moment the Jerusalem Council, AD 49, Acts 15, is recorded in there. In Acts 10 and 11, Peter had received three visions by God to eat unclean animals. And he refused. After the first, I've never eaten an unclean animal. He saw the vision three times and he knew it was from God. And he goes, what does this mean? And all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And uh, Cornelius, a Gentile, had sent a couple of his servants over to meet Peter and said, we were told to come to talk to you. And he goes, huh, okay, where are we going? So he goes to Cornelius' house, which was unclean. Jews didn't go to the Gentiles' houses. He went inside, and Cornelius said, we've all been praying, and God sent you. So what do you have to tell us? And he recognized history was being made. And so he begins to tell them the story of God. And right in the middle of the story, he didn't even get to the punchline, and the Holy Spirit swept through the, the group. And the Gentiles became Christians. So he goes back to Jerusalem, and they call him on the carpet. The leaders in Jerusalem, what are you doing? You know better than to eat with the Gentiles. And he said, guys, what happened to us on Pentecost happened to the Gentiles. I saw it. And so they said, they just kind of, I picture them sitting back, and then they said, well, well, God has gone to the Gentiles as well. That's actually the first church council right there. He gets called on the carpet. So then we have Peter and Paul, Peter, uh, Peter and James. So Peter, uh, excuse me, James. James is in Jerusalem, and he writes James. And he says, so you see, I talked about this last week, that salvation is not by faith alone, but by works. James 2.24. Paul is in the southern regions of Asia Minor, on his first missionary journey, and he writes in Galatians, so you see, salvation is by grace alone through faith, not by works. The exact same Greek construction just reversed. We talked about that last week. They're both really talking about the same thing, but from two different vantage points. So you have, here's, a, here's the timeline with salvation. Paul says, we call it forensic justification. We like technical terms as scholars. So when you come to Christ, it's by faith alone. But we talked last week that a gift always ha- involves reciprocity in the ancient world, always. Once you accept Christ, then you're prepared for good works, Ephesians 2.10. And James says, without those good works, that says your faith isn't real. And so works are actually very important in this whole process, not for eternal life. You're granted eternal life because of your faith, and then you begin good works. You begin to do the good works which God has prepared ahead of time. So that happens in around 47, 48 AD. So now we have a whole new conundrum because the Judaizers are going to Galatia to and saying, no, that's not true. You don't have to, you have to keep the law. It's not by faith alone. You have to keep the law. So the Jewish leaders, James, Peter, they all get together in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we call it the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. That's AD 49. And can you imagine the conundrum? What do they actually have to believe 
They don't have the New Testament. They hadn't written it yet. They're going to write that many years later. They don't have any help. All they have is the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. What, what do you actually have to do? And Peter reminds them, guys, remember what happened at Cornelius' house? See, the Holy Spirit set up this conference, this council, so they could know. Remember what happened? I was just talking to them, and the Holy Spirit swept through the crowd. And I go, yeah, we remember that. So Peter says, I don't think we should burden the Gentiles beyond anything excessive. James gets up and says, same thing at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We decided it was appropriate to burden you with the same burdens we grew up with. Okay, so they wrote a letter and they said in there, we're not going to burden you. So I don't know how they sorted through the entire Mosaic law. And they came up with four things to ask them to do. They're all related to the Gentiles. Paul took the letter and all he asked, he can he reduced it to one. And that was a change in world history right there. So you have James and Galatians written about the same time, which portray two different sides, I believe, of the same coin, the two different sides of this temporal receiving of eternal life. And then you have the Jerusalem Council where they resolve it. And they say, it's easy to come to the Lord. And then James's book makes sense. It's easy to come to the Lord. It's not so easy living out a Christian life. That's when it gets challenging. That's when it gets challenging. So they were brought near through the saving activity of Christ on the cross. We were brought near. But the question is, how did this happen? And we have not yet answered that question until this passage right here. So I'm going to read verses 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace. There's the first use of that word. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. There's the second use of that word. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace. There's a third use of that word. To you who were far away and peace. There's the fourth use of that word. You think this is important? To preach peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You see, we now understand the key, peace. So of you that were raised in liturgical churches and you pass the peace of Christ, this is where it comes from right here. He came to establish peace. Peace is not the absence of hostility or enmity. It's far richer than that. It it has its roots in the Old Testament concept of shalom, where we come together reconciled, loving each other, caring for each other. All the enmity and hostility is gone. So when we pass the peace in some of your settings, that's saying, I welcome you and I love you. That's really what that's saying. And I enjoy being your brother or sister. And the whole concept of shalom is very oriented toward the whole person. It's rest. It's enjoyment. It's life-giving. It's far more than the absence of hostility. It's the presence of life. And what did Christ say in in, uh, John 10? I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
So what makes us unique from all the institutions? This is the one place in the world where you can come every week and just rest. Set aside the anxieties, the stresses, whatever you have going on. Just take a deep breath right now. This is why we're here. This is it. And this is what the world longs for. All of us, together, setting our differences aside, laying our anxieties and stresses aside, whatever it is, and saying, I'm just going to breathe easy today at DCC and just rest. Peace. Peace is the answer. And this is behind Paul's bringing unity to all things. Go back to Ephesians 1.10. He purposed in Christ these good things to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, and that's what happened, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We just sang about heaven come down. You see, the Bible always presents heaven, which means God coming to us. And that's what we have right here. There's nothing in the world, in fact, he's going to say at the end of Ephesians, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. That's not where the fight is. It's not here. It's not here with us. You've heard me say thousands of times, I don't care what your politics are. I don't care what you think about science and the mask and the coat. I mean, I've heard everything. I've heard it all. I don't care about that. I don't even care what sin you struggle with. I've said, just don't stay there. Come talk to me. We have this fantastic God that's guiding us. And yes, he lets us sin. We deviate, head off into this sin. And guess what we discover? Well, that didn't make me very happy. And he said, you're right. And he laughs at you and pulls you back. And then we deviate over here. Then we say, well, that didn't make me very happy. He laughs again. You're right. And pulls you back. Okay. I've just said over and over again, all those things don't matter. What matters is I just love you. Don't stay where you are. Don't be divided by your policies, your procedures, your beliefs, your politics. Don't be divided by that. Let the, what you do out there is up to you. I'm not going to worry about it. But what you do here, this is a place where we can rest together. That's why we celebrate communion. Okay? So, this was behind Isaiah's vision. I want you to hear Isaiah 52. Now, when you read Isaiah 52, I want you to remember that this was at the end of, they've already been deported, Jerusalem's already been destroyed, but God hasn't forgotten his people. So this prophecy comes when they're already have been, uh, they've already been uh, taken out by the Babylonians and they're now scattered around the Babylonian Empire. And this is the prophecy. Um, burst into songs. Let's go back to verse 7, the one before that. I want to capture the beginning one. Do you have that there? Ah, okay. I'm going to turn there. Hang on with me just a minute. I have a brand new Bible, which means I can't use it yet. I'm, I'm throwing it against the wall. I'm break, you know, I'm doing everything I can to break the back so it does what I want. Okay. How, oh, yeah, there it is. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Okay, now stop. Let's picture the ancient world. You're in a walled city, and your men leave to fight a battle. You don't know who won, do you? They have no modern communications. So you have a guy running on foot to bring you the good news, we won. Or you have a foreign king and his army coming to saying, you lost. 
Those are your two choices. Okay? So he uses an image that they would have captured. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. We won. We won. Our men are coming back. The army's returning. Who proclaim peace, shalom. There it is. Who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy when the Lord returns to Zion. See, the Lord now is the king. He is the warrior king coming back with the army. He won. This is a picture of Christ on the cross. Satan has already lost the battle. We're his playground now. The battle's already over. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem, but more than that, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. This is what Paul was envisioning. He accomplished it. He did it. The battle's over. We just have the cleanup work to do. So when Satan comes after you, like when I was just talking to some people out there, when I get on a trip to go teach overseas, and I have all these challenges laid out in front of me, the more challenges, the more, the more, I, the more I think, huh, this is God doing his best. I mean, Satan doing his best to stop me. And every challenge is beyond my ability to fix, so I just get to sit back and grin and say, what are you going to do, Lord? Am I going to get there or not? It's so funny. In 22 years, I've never had challenges getting back. But I got a ton going over. So every time I get ready to board a plane, in March, I'm going to uh, Mozambique and to uh, Kathmandu to say goodbye to one of my dear friends who's soon to be with the Lord. I've been working with her for 15 years now. And I know when I get on that plane, there's going to be challenge after challenge after challenge. And I'm just going to smile and say, okay, Lord, what happens? And so we don't have to worry. How did he do it? He removed the barrier. Verse 14. He, uh, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has de- destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, this barrier brings to mind two pictures that they would have had in front of them. One of them, the physical temple in Jerusalem, there is a barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And we actually have discovered some of the signs hanging on this barrier. And basically they say, Gentiles, stay out at the risk of your life. We'll kill you. You're not allowed to pass in. You're not like us. Stay out. You're not like us. Stay out. But that brings to mind the way they viewed the law. Okay? I'm going to read to you um, a sampling, just a short paragraph out of the letter of uh, Aristeus. He's a Jewish person written probably second, um, second century BC. And he's explaining the purpose of the law, the Mosaic law that we just went through, the Levit- Leviticus. Here's what he says. Now our lawgiver, being a wise man, that's Moses, fenced us around with impregnable ramparts and walls of iron that we might not mingle at all with any of the other nations, but remain pure in body and soul. Therefore, lest we should be corrupted by any abomination or our lives be perverted by evil communications, he hedged us around on all sides by rules of purity. That's Leviticus. 
affecting alike what we eat, what we drink, what we touch, what we hear, what we see. Do you remember the original covenant? If you obey these commands fully, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests to reach the entire world. A holy nation so all the other nations will want to come to this nation. Here's God, kaleidoscope of nations. He chooses one to reach the rest. And what did they do with this prized, precious possession, the law? You're not like us, so stay out. You're not like us, so stay out. Okay, this is a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for hands. How many of you are familiar with or come from churches that have practiced that? Remember we looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. The verse before says, we, do know, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. If anyone is in Christ, they're the new creation. There's no longer a scarlet A for adultery, scarlet H for homosexuality, a scarlet letter, whatever you fill it in. Those are gone. That's why we're a church that practices welcoming people, inviting them, not judging people and pushing them away. Because we don't want to be guilty of the same thing that the Jews were guilty of. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles, they despised them, and they had nothing to do with them. How did Christ do this? He made peace. Now we're at the verse that was read this morning. He did this by setting aside in his flesh, verse 15, the law with its commands and regulations. The irony here is striking. He was put to death on the cross so that he could put to death the hostility. This was the challenge faced by the Jerusalem council when the Gentiles started coming. What do we ask him to do? Believe. We're not going to ask them to be weighed down by the same burden our fathers weighed us down with. Believe. It's amazing. His goal, the second half of verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I'm going to read to you a letter from what we call the Christian apologists. In the second century, the church had grown so big that the Roman Empire was now noticing. And all kinds of people, philosophers, leaders, were asking questions about this new religion that they didn't know much about. So one of the apologists wrote a letter called the Epistle to Diogenetus. And here's what he said. Since I see, most excellent Diogenetus, that you are extremely interested in learning about the religion of the Christians and are asking very clear and careful questions about them, specifically what God did, what God did they believe in, how they worship him, so that they all disregard the world and despise death, that should be us. Disregard the world and despise death. We don't care about it anymore. 
neither recognizing those who are considered to be gods by the Greeks, that's us, we don't worship all the gods, or nor observing the superstition of the Jews, what is the nature of the heartfelt love they have for one another, and why this new race. That's how they thought about Christians. This is a Christian writing. And how this new race came to be about, and that's what that letter is about, explaining some of this right here. You see, he made peace by setting aside the barrier. This was a challenge faced by the Jerusalem Council. What now? They didn't have the New Testament to guide them. They had to figure it out. I love it. His goal was to create an entirely new humanity which is consistent with 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, the exact same language, they are the new creation. What does that mean? It means you're no longer American citizens. That's what it means. You're now citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. That's what it means. Every one of you are Philippians, uh, citizens of heaven. That's what it means. We are the gateway for the world to find the kingdom. That's what it means. So what's the impact of that? Let's finish reading it and then we're done. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, this whole building, there it is. This whole building what was foreseen in Leviticus. Amazing how they turned the blessing into a curse. You're not like us. Stay out. This whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit, his Spirit. You see, we are now fellow citizens with all the privileges and rights that go with being a citizen. All the riches of heavens belong to us. We are fellow citizens. But it also means that we are all members of God's household. We are now sons and daughters. That's what it means. We're sons and daughters. Now here's the amazing thing about it. It gives us insight into how uniquely we approach reconciliation. Contrast this with your own political views, okay? What comes first? the horizontal. He made the two groups into one. And think about evangelism. What comes second? He removes the barrier. What comes third? He unites us with God. We often reverse it. Think about reconciliation. That's why when I sit with people in bars, on airplanes, wherever I happen to be, tell me your story. I'm not interested in selling them anything. I'm interested in loving them. Tell me your story. What was your life like? Why do you laugh at me when I tell you I'm a pastor? What happened? And so what I'm doing is loving them and removing the barrier by asking them for honesty. Tell me the truth about what happened. I'm very honest with them. When I say I'm a pastor, they roll their eyes. I don't want to be that type of Christian. I don't know what you're exposed to, but that's not what I want to be. I'm removing the barrier by letting them talk about it. And helping them to see that authenticity is real. 
Only then can I introduce them to the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for reconciling us. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for pursuing us to the ends of the earth, for not only making us citizens in your kingdom, but for making us members of your household, sons and daughters of you. We are grateful. In your son's name, we say thank you. Amen.